Tonight on The Readout. I think that people thought that we came into this as some kind of game. Um, this is not a game at all. What I am doing is very serious. It's very important work. Nope, not a game. That was Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis last summer talking about her probe of Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And there are new indications tonight of precisely when any indictments will be coming this summer. Also tonight, Ron DeSantis gets set to formally launch his presidential campaign with the baggage of a four plus year record of attacking the personal freedoms of the people and businesses in his own state including his economically destructive fight with Disney. Plus, my conversation with Chasten Buttigieg, who has a message for young people amid the growing threats to LGBT youth. But we begin tonight with seven battleground states that President Biden won in 2020. Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Not only will these all be states to watch in next year's presidential election, but they were all part of the failed plot by Donald Trump and his team to overturn the last election by organizing slates of alternative fake electors. Those illegitimate Republican electors submitted forged documents in December of 2020, vouching that they were duly elected and qualified electors and were falsely declaring Trump the victor and then tried to award their state's electoral votes to Trump instead of Joe Biden. As we know, these fake electoral slates paid a huge role in Trump's effort to short-circuit our democracy. In fact, they were crucial to Trump's plan to have Vice President Mike Pence contest the results before Congress on January 6th. We know that because the now infamous memos drafted by Trump lawyers John Eastman and Jenna Ellis both cited these dubious election documents as the basis for throwing out the legitimate votes from those states. You'd think this would be a prime target for DOJ special counsel Jack Smith and his investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election, and it might well be. We just don't know. What we do know is that the most aggressive investigations so far have been by local prosecutors. And that brings me to Georgia. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has signaled an August decision on potential charges in the investigation of Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election in Georgia, which included the use of those fake electors. NBC News has obtained a letter from Willis to the Fulton County Superior Court Chief Judge saying most of her staff will work remotely during a three-week period in August. She also asked that judges not schedule trials or hold in-person hearings during part of that same time period, perhaps suggesting that that could be when a grand jury unseals indictments. Now, it is worth noting that earlier this month, at least eight of those fake electors in Georgia struck immunity deals with Willis's office, according to court filings. And joining me now is Hugo Lowell, political investigations reporter for The Guardian, and Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst. I don't even know where to go first, but I'm going to come to you first, Lisa. That There is this, you know, hold off on doing anything else kind of request. To you, does that signal indictments or could we be misreading this? It definitely signals to me that she expects some serious grand jury activity, right? And that she's trying to clear the building in order to make it safe for as many people as possible. One of the things, Joy, that also struck me was how long the period is, right? It runs from July 1st to August 18th. That doesn't mean we should expect an indictment on each and every one of those days. Sure. But 
it also suggests to me that we should be expecting perhaps more than one charging instrument sure. on more than one theory, right? So that Donald Trump is not necessarily, if he is indicted at all, going to be indicted on the same theory as some of the fake electors or other people who could face criminal exposure here. Right. And we know a judge, you know, Trump tried to get Fonnie Willis bounced off the case. The judge said not doing that. So, we you know, at least for now, she's in place. Nothing can be done. Let me just play really quickly. This is a woman named Emily Kors. People will remember her. She was the foreperson of the grand jury. Here is what she said earlier um, about whether we should be surprised. <laughs> I will tell you, it's it's not a short list. More I mean, than- we saw 75 people and there are six pages of the report cut out, mm. I think, if you look at the page numbers. Mm-hmm. So it's not... So we're talking about more than a dozen people? I would say that, yes. Are these recognizable names, names that people would know? There are certainly names that you would recognize, yes. There are names also that you might not recognize, or there are names that, like, you might recognize as someone who's followed this case, but then, you know, your mother might not recognize because she doesn't care about the intricacies of the case. Um, But... There definitely are some names that you expect. Her giddiness aside, which was super inappropriate. Uh, let me just put up a, a list of some of the names that we do recognize. Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, Trump's lawyer, Brian Kemp, governor of Georgia, who, who were summoned before the grand jury. We, no one thinks Brian Kemp is in any trouble. Obviously, he said no. Michael Flynn, um, Newt Gingrich, uh, who was a former White House, former U.S. House Speaker, Lindsey Graham. Uh, he doesn't seem to be in that much trouble. Mark Meadows, former chief of staff. Um, Brad Raffensperger, obviously, he's the person who also said no. John Eastman, who was one of the architects of the scheme. Cleta Mitchell, who we know is also another architect of that kind of stuff, and David Schaefer. Is there somebody that you see on that list who should be particularly worried? I think John Eastman should be worried. I think David Schaefer should be worried. And certainly, Joy, I think David Schaefer should be worried because the reporting is telling us that David Schaefer should be worried. And he is the Georgia Republican Party chairman. Donald Trump is actually going to speak at the Georgia Republican Party. uh, And I want to bring Hugo Law on that. You think that he should be concerned? I think he should be concerned because he doesn't have an immunity deal. He was split off from a group of electors earlier this year because there was a perceived conflict. That means that he could face some exposure. That likely means he could have some exposure here that others in that group didn't, even before we were talking about possible immunity deals. Sure. Hugh, uh, let me bring you in here, because so Donald Trump is is supposed to, I guess, address the Georgia Republican Party. The, the, the Republican Party in Georgia, put aside Brian Kemp, don't go by him. It, it is a wild, far right-wing party. Um, what are the sort of you know tea leaves that you're hearing coming out of Trump world and Georgia? You know, it's a really interesting uh, dynamic because he's obviously uh, planning to do a rally in Georgia in the coming weeks, uh, which could place him in the state uh, just weeks before an indictment drops that could implicate him. And if you look at the kinds of things that witnesses have been asked and the kinds of noises that have that the district attorney has been making, it sounds like this is a really sprawling conspiracy case at, at its core, right? Like the fake elector scheme and Trump's efforts to overturn the election and Trump's efforts to pressure state officials like Brad Raffensperger to overturn the election are all being seen in the same light. And so when this conspiracy case eventually moves forward, I think the concern among Trump world 
lawyers, to be honest, uh, not really Trump himself, but Trump world lawyers has been how that is going to factor in when he goes to Georgia and when he starts making public comments, uh, if that might incriminate him uh, in, in that sense. And so here's the thing, and, and I'll bring both of you in there, but I'll come to you on this loop, because it, is, it feels like what's happening with Donald Trump is that on a civil side, he's losing and losing and losing. On the criminal side, people around him are losing and losing and losing. We now have uh, Mr. Weisselberg, um, who used to be his business guy, the guy who ran his business. He's now facing an additional perjury charge if he doesn't cooperate with the DA. Um, He apparently maybe was not so honest when he spoke with Letitia James, um, uh, who sued Donald Trump over financial fraud in the organization. What could be the challenges there? I think the challenges there are whether Alan Weisselberg is going to crack, right? One of the reasons to explore perjury charges is because the earlier iteration of a threat against Alan Weisselberg, insurance fraud charges, apparently have not been enough to get his cooperation so far. Right. Joy, I looked at those deposition transcripts. They are part of the public record. Alan Weisselberg sat for three depositions with Tish James's office in 2020. During those interviews, he told them that Yeah, Trump overvalued his apartment by give or take $200 million. Right. (laughs) But that's not the lie. The lie is he was asked then, did he call financial institutions and tell them that he needed to correct that? And he said, no, because I didn't learn about that error until much later. In separate court filings, we have Tish James's lawyer saying, actually, Alan Weisselberg knew about that. He knew about the right size of the apartment and what the value should be. In 2012, three years before the value was misrepresented in Trump's financial statements. If I'm the New York DA's office, that's one potential source of a perjury charge sure. that I could be looking at right now. And, see that, and, and I say that, Hugo, because it does feel like people around Donald Trump keep meeting these increasingly dire legal consequences for things that are peripheral to things that he did. Now let's go to Enrique Tarrio. There is now a police officer who now also is in trouble. He's been charged with lying uh, about leaks to Enrique Tarrio. Washington, D.C. police officer was arrested on Friday on charges. He lied about leaking confidential information to Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio and obstructing the investigation after the destruction of that Black Lives Matter um, banner for which Enrique Tarrio got indicted. Um, you, this is some of the texts that they were texting to each other on a uh, on telegram looks like the feds are locking people up for rioting at the capitol i hope none of your guys were among them uh, this this gentleman this guy lamond told him his name is officer lamond in a telegram message two days after the siege so far what i'm seeing and hearing we're good tario replied great to hear lamond wrote of course i can't say it officially but personally i support you all and don't want to see your group's name and reputation dragged through the mud um okay his name is lieutenant shane lamond uh, what do we know about that? Because if you now you're starting to wrap up more people after Tario's already been convicted of seditious conspiracy, you start wondering if people start thinking that maybe being in Trump world and MAGA ain't, ain't paying off so much. Yeah, this is really interesting. You know, Lamond had a very close relationship with Enrique Tario uh, through the post-election period <clears throat> and leading up to January 6. And this actually came uh, as an interesting point for the January 6 committee uh, and kind of reporters looking into this because. Lamond and some people in MPD also had a relationship with Roger Stone. Mm. And Roger Stone, of course, had a relationship with Enrique Tarrio. And so when you kind of draw the dots together, you triangulate to this relationship between an officer in MPD, the leader of the Proud Boys, and 
shall we say, someone who was very active in Stop the Steal uh, leading up to the Capitol attack. And I have to imagine that the special counsel is looking at this particularly aggressively. And the Justice Department is looking at this particularly aggressively because if you do want to find if there was any sort of conspiracy, this is exactly the place you would look. Yeah, it does feel like the sharks are circling closer and closer and closer to the Donald. Uh, Hugo Lowell and Lisa Rubin, thank you both very much. Up next on the readout, Ron DeSantis thinks the authoritarian state that he's created in Florida is going to go over big with Republican voters nationwide. But the backlash may be even bigger. The readout continues after this. Next week, Ron DeSantis will reportedly announce his presidential bid. But you got to wonder, what, what makes him think America even wants what he's selling? Posturing to the anti-woke mob has consequences. We're talking heavy economic hits centered around his war against Disney. On Thursday, the corporate giant said it has abandoned a plan to open up a new employee campus near Orlando amid rising tensions with the state and its governor. More than 2,000 California-based employees will no longer be asked to relocate to Florida. Josh DeMauro, chairman of Disney Parks Experiences and Products Division, cited changing business conditions as a reason for canceling the Lake Nona project. The new regional campus, a billion-dollar investment, was intended for employees from all across the company. That includes the Walt Disney Imagineering Department, which uses innovation and storytelling to bring Disney stories and cartoons to life. It's actually a very cool job. You get to make children's dreams come true. So it doesn't surprise us that Ron DeSantis is over there crushing children's joy over fake fights with Mickey Mouse, while also crushing the joy of of Pride events, one of which is now canceled in Tampa in the wake of his anti-drag bill. Targeting drag shows is only one of the priorities DeSantis gleefully signed into law this week as part of his pre-presidential rollout. The new bills also ban gender-affirming care for minors and will even grant the state of Florida temporary custody of children whose parents provide them with gender-affirming care. Hey, Ron, what was that part again during COVID? Checks notes here about, uh, oh, parental rights. I guess Florida kids now belong to the state, like anyone who gets pregnant down there. Don't say gay, bathroom bills, censoring pronouns, book bans, abortion bans. That is exactly what America wants, said absolutely no one. Instead, it's what happens when keeping it right wing goes wrong. Joining me now is New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg and Republican strategist Susan Del Percio. Thank you both for being here. Um, I just want to play for you all this sound of Bob Iger who is clearly winning this <laughs> fight with Ron DeSantis on a call, an earnings call. And here he is talking about Florida. Does the state want us to invest more, employ more people, and pay more taxes or not? Susan, you have a longtime veteran Republican strategist. Where in the playbook for Republican politicians is lose a billion dollars of investments for your state? You know, what's been amazing through this whole fight is what is a win for Ron DeSantis? He doesn't have any path except the win is a one-liner that he's been using in speeches. And it's not the first time Ron DeSantis has really ticked off big industry in his state. If you remember during COVID, he was after the CDC to get the cruise ship industry back online. And once, finally, they were allowed... What do, and they and the cruise ship industry is like yes, but everyone's going to have a vaccinate need to be vaccinated. And Ron DeSantis says no business will operate in Florida right. unless you you know that requires a, pa- a passport vaccination. Yeah. You know? 
And they went bananas. Yes. He and sued them. All he is after, what it shows is that business development for Ron DeSantis is all about trying to get a one-liner in. Yeah. And it's about personal development. It has nothing to do with business. And the Republicans running for president or talking about running for president are having a field day. It started with Nikki Haley saying, hey, yeah. come over to South Carolina. We yeah. have room for you. 100%. But it's, it, it is also, I mean, it's so hard to talk about Republican values because Donald Trump has corrupted them so much. Like, it, But back in the time, yeah. people actually in the Republican Party cared about supporting business. Yeah, not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Let, just to go through here, but Disney paid and collected more than $1.1 billion in state and local tax revenues in Florida last year. Walt Disney Company has about 75,000 employees in the state. It's one of the top private employers in the state. Not all the employees at visitors actually stay in the park. Some stay at nearby hotels, eat at local restaurants. They go on side field trips. The water parks in Central Florida draw millions to Central Florida every year. So he's basically said, I would rather them leave I would rather them leave. A 2019 study at Oxford Economics found that Orlando area tourism, at which Disney sits at the center, generated $75.2 billion in economic impact for Central Florida. That's about $1,000 for every tourist. Ron DeSantis has said, okay, but if you won't do what I say, get out. If you won't raise your kids how I say, we'll take your kids. If you, if you want to wear a mask, I'll rip it off your kid in front of you in a news conference. What is this agenda? What is he doing? Well, I think that, first of all, I think he just kind of misunderstood what happened with his reelection. You know, he, I think, I think it, his, you know, his kind of opening the schools, his opposition to COVID restrictions was popular, the kind of quote unquote sure. freedom agenda for better or worse. But he mistook that support for being kind of support for a full on war on wokeness. And he's yeah. made anti-wokeness the center of his the center of his governorship, right? He always says, you know, Florida is where woke goes to die. It's why he's put so much energy into attacking new college and transforming new college. You know, this school with less than 700 kids has become this major policy obsession of his. And I think that, you know, he's so deep in sort of the right-wing ecosystem that people who were all cheering, yeah, Disney's all full of groomers, that he sort of lost touch with the rest of the country for whom, you know, this, these buzzwords about cultural Marxism right. and, you know, all the kind of language that you would know if you spend a lot of time reading right-wing blogs and listening to right-wing <laughs> podcasts, but they just don't mean anything, I think, to most people. And they don't mean anything, but also what, what, what parents and regular people, normal people mm-hmm. understand is, hang on a second, I'm raising my kid. I take my kid to my doctor. And then you're going to tell me you're going to take my kid because you don't like the medical decisions I'm making. You're going to tell my kid they can't read book. You're going to tell my black child they can't read a book about black history. Really? You're going to tell them they can't take a, a black history. You're going to tell my female child they can't take history about women. You're going to tell my Jewish child they can't learn about the Holocaust because you don't like it. This isn't freedom. This is not a freedom agenda. This is a do what Ron DeSantis tells you to do. The state owns you agenda. How, who does he think that's going to attract? Well, I think Michelle was spot on when she said that DeSantis misunderstood his election, re- the election results for 2022. He really didn't get at what was driving people. It was nothing. They didn't show up. Correct. I mean, there was a big difference. 900,000 fewer votes cast on the Democratic line Correct. from 18 to 20, 2022. Correct. So people maybe didn't come out so much. They didn't come out against him, but they didn't come out for him either. And right now, you look at independent women, and we, yeah, one of Ron DeSantis's big things is, I can win a general election. Ah! Ah-ha! I 
mean, <laughs> women in Florida hate him by 61 percent. Correct. I, I, I don't understand. I, I, it makes no sense that he is touting himself as an alternative to Donald Trump when actually his baggage is policy baggage, which is right. much more dangerous to carry around in a general election. You're absolutely right. And he also so he's he's Trump with a completely subjugated legislature. So the idea that he could do on a national scale what he does in Florida is bullshit. I'm sorry to use the word, the, the horrible word, but he, it's not real because he's got a sycophant legislature that will pass anything he says. So that isn't true on a national scale. But to the, the same point, the point I think that Susan makes, women want a lot of things, a six-week abortion ban at a national level, that ain't one of them. Right. And I think that, you know, unlike Trump, he is much more kind of a captive of the Republican base. Trump kind of bosses around the Republican base and they follow him. I think Ron DeSantis follows the base. And so he was in a, he was in kind of an impossible position. I mean, there's no excuse for signing this bill, but he also wouldn't be a presidential contender if, in the Republican party sure. if he hadn't signed it. And so on the one hand, he was first kind of touting himself as this more electable alternative to Donald Trump. And then Donald Trump, in some ways, has been able to outflank him with kind of, quote unquote, moderates by, you know, by by kind of calling into question the abortion bills, the abortion bans that his own administration has made possible. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a phony argument, but he's kind of put DeSantis into a corner where he can't abandon anti-abortion extremism. But he also can't win a general election with it. And you know what Donald Trump didn't do while he was president? Sign a six-week abortion ban, right? I mean, he can say, well, I didn't do that. Donald Trump doesn't <laughs> have anything he wants anyway. He, he, anyway. he can say he's to the left of him and he's to the right of the others. And no cussing on, uh, on TV. I apologize for that. It, it, he just infuriates me in a very specific way. Uh, Michelle Goldberg and Susan Del Percio. And thank you for pointing out that he won by subtraction, not by addition. Still ahead. The clock is still ticking on raising the debt ceiling as Biden signals he is willing to negotiate with the Republican hostage takers. Goody. I'll explain next. <laughs> With the clock ticking on a June 1st debt ceiling deadline, Speaker Kevin McCarthy's team walked out on negotiations with the White House this afternoon. Louisiana Representative Garrett Graves said it's just not productive and accused the Biden administration of being unreasonable. Negotiations have resumed tonight, but what's actually unreasonable is the Republicans' red line in talks. New York requirements in talks requiring work requirements on social safety net programs, including SNAP food aid, aid to low income families with children and Medicaid, a program that benefits America's poor. People who MAGA Republican Matt Gates referred to as couch potatoes who shouldn't be subsidized by hardworking Americans. It is the newest version of Ronald Reagan's racist and derogatory welfare queen myth that jumpstarted the Republican Party's war on the working poor. Emphasis on working. As David Firestone writes in The New York Times, demands over the debt ceiling are just a vehicle for Republicans to go after the people they've long demonized. These largely racist attacks, very much including the one now on the table, persistently ignore the little mentioned fact that a vast majority of the people receiving these benefits are already working or are unable to work. You heard that right. Work requirements are already the law. Federal law requires adults under 50 without dependents to work at least 20 hours a week to receive SNAP food aid benefits. And the majority of Medicaid recipients are working, 61% of them in 2021. And those who weren't working were taking care of small children 
disabled, retired, or in school. So what Republicans are pretending to negotiate on is nothing except sticking it to the working poor. As usual, the cruelty is the point. Joining me now is Ali Velshi, MSNBC chief correspondent and host of Velshi Weekend Mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. I'm so lucky to be here to get to talk to you. But this has been a long thing since Reagan, right? And let's just play Reagan real quick. One social program, food stamps, had grown from a $70 million experimental program in 1965 to an 11 and a quarter billion dollar program in 1981. The government was draining off America's productivity and placing an an enormous drag on the economy. Our uh, workfare program says that welfare should be a temporary helping hand, not a way of life. I think it's good for the poor to begin to replace welfare with the work ethic, and we ought to recognize it. It infuriates me because they're talking about people who already work. They just don't make enough money to survive. We don't have a work ethic problem in the United States. This is the, in the Western world, this is the country where people don't use their vacation. They don't use their paid time off. People work, and we have a 3.5% unemployment rate. So, so we don't actually have a work problem. If they, there's no couch potato issue. But that said, this is just targeting the working poor, which is what happened during COVID, right? When they were, we were negotiating for months those relief packages, and people didn't want people to get 600 bucks right. without proving all sorts of things and jumping all through right. all sorts of holes. We have a Federal Reserve that can issue debt to companies with no approval from anyone. But God forbid you give a human 600 bucks, a, right. a working American. So you mentioned it. Either people already work or they're taking care of kids or they're disabled. Medicaid, it's for people who don't have those means. That's right. So I think the honest thing to do here is to simply say, we'd like to cut this many billion from the budget because that's what Republicans want to do. And we just want to take it away from these people. It's, it's not, Kevin McCarthy and Ilk are saying that if you put work requirements on, it encourages work. It encourages people to get to work, which is very much the language you heard from Newt Gingrich back there or Rudy Giuliani or Ronald Reagan. It's simply not true. I'm a numbers guy. I don't have a dog in this fight. I I like that people work. I like that people get paid properly. And I'm a Canadian, so I believe that people should get (laughs) health care. Right. So all of those things can be achieved. This doesn't solve anything. If it actually did, that would be interesting. If you said that doing causing these people to have to work 80 hours a month or 40 hours a week to get their benefits would change the dynamic. I'd be all for it. It's just not true. So let's just be honest. Let's just say Poor people are where the cuts come from because yeah. they don't have lobbying organizations. That's right. And that's what this is about. And that they dislike them. I mean, you think about, um, they tried this in Arkansas. So David Firestone yes. points out that they did this in Arkansas. They would, they put these stringent work requirements in. All that happened is that it, it didn't even appreciably change the correct. number of people employed, but 17,000 people lost their benefits. That is correct. So that will work. If you cause people to have these work requirements, what you will not do is see an increase in, em- in employment. Right. You will see a cut in expenditures, right? So you, because you'll just eliminate you just people. eliminate people. So think about that. You're taking people off of SNAP, off of food stamps, yeah. and Medicaid. Like what kind of country is looking <laughs> to have fewer people have enough? We have a huge uh, child poverty problem, uh, a hunger problem in this country, which we should not have. There's no other Western developed country that has that. Why would we be taking these last mile things away from people. Yeah. It, the thing about it is if you think about the kind of people who are getting snapped, but who also work, we can put up, you know, where we are, one of the yep. worst countries in terms of poverty in the world. These are people who, let's say, are a small hairdresser or they work at Walmart. They work at a store. They work in a convenience store, yep. but they don't make enough money to actually afford health care. That is who is on Medicaid. Yes. They've now said one of their changes, one of their 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 their, 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 uh, their uh, improvements is to say that we want to make the work requirements not just under 50, but up to 55. Correct. It's even harder for 
a 55-year-old yes. to get a job yep. than a 45-year-old. So let's think about this. In much of the country, it's not the case here in a place like New York, but the federal minimum wage is $7.25. So assume you, are, you work 40 hours a week. That is a grand total. These are these couch potatoes or whatever you want. $15,000 a year. That is your, what are you doing your income. What are you doing with that? A year. And you cannot afford health care with that. And so yep. what they're saying, they should just admit Correct. they so hate Medicaid. If you work for something close to the minimum wage in this country, yeah. you have to get aid to Correct. buy food for your children or to get medical care. Or you just you get uh, diabetes and you get heart disease and you get rushed to the emergency and then you 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 eat up from a societal perspective, four times the amount of money that if you actually just had health care and went to a doctor. Yeah. Right. So none of this works. The math on none of this makes sense. This is one of those things where you save a billion dollars here. It will ultimately be eaten up somewhere else. Is there somewhere in the budget you could find lots and lots of savings? Because I'm thinking that the Pentagon might have a little money. Well, there's Pentagon. There is. And there's taxes, right? Like a lot of our deficit is cutting taxes on the very rich in this country. That's right. That's what happens. You cut tax. I mean, if you look at all of our accumulated deficits, uh, which which end up being the national debt, far more of it comes from military spending, war, or tax cuts. The stingiest states in this country when it comes to Medicaid are red states, and they are the poorest states in this country, with the exception of New Mexico. The 10 poorest states in this country are all states that have low taxes and no medical care for the poor. Think about that. Ali Velshi, thank you. Um, And coming up, uh, Allie is actually hosting The Last Word tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern. Then be sure to tune into Allie's show, Velshi, tomorrow morning, beginning at 10 a.m. Eastern. It is essential viewing. Do not miss it. Okay, my interview with Chastin Buttigieg is coming up next. Before we go to break, I want to show you the powerful scene today in Harlem. Civil rights leaders, local officials, and loved ones gathered for the funeral of Jordan Neely, the 30-year-old homeless man who died earlier this month after being placed in a chokehold on a Manhattan subway train for some 50 minutes. Reverend Al Sharpton delivered an emotional eulogy, calling out vigilantism as well as the systems that had failed Jordan. The sad part about it, the sick part about it, is that he'd been choked much of his life. The agencies that failed to keep him and give him mental health choked Jordan. Those that let him go, even though they had his record of needing help, they choked Jordan. The city agencies choked Jordan. He'd been choked most of his adult life. He's an example of how you're choking the homeless, how you're choking the mentally ill, how you're choking all over this city. And we come to say this choking got to stop. Chastin Buttigieg is a father, teacher, author, and Michigander. But many of you have probably heard that he's also the husband of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. In today's America, teachers are under attack for what they teach, what they say, and who they are. The LGBTQ kids they teach are also under attack, not allowed to speak up and express themselves. It is amid this toxic and hate-filled world that Chastin Buttigieg has published an adaptation of his recent memoir, specifically for young adults, titled, I Have Something to Tell You. Chastin speaks of his experience growing up in rural conservative Michigan and how he was able to find his voice and ultimately embrace his real self with honesty and compassion. 
In the book, he explains just how complicated that journey was, writing, it was more important for me to protect myself than to live authentically. That's a situation that many LGBTQ plus people find themselves in. Everyone needs to be able to come out on their own terms. And in high school, I just knew that wasn't a safe option. This book serves as a beacon of hope and a guide to all of the kids across America that are feeling silenced, bullied, and shunned, especially the ones in states like Florida, Texas, and Arkansas. And Chastin Buttigieg joins me now. Chastin, how are you? And thanks for being here. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Of course. I think people who have seen you uh, do interviews, and especially seeing you with Mayor Pete, they know you as like the fun Buddha judge. Not that, not that your husband isn't fun, <laughs> but you're like the fun Buddha judge, right? Secretary Pete, I should say. Now, I still am used to calling him Mayor Pete. But, you know, I, and I, it's painful, I think, for a lot of people to think of you as not happy. But you've written about not fitting in. Um, not feeling like you fit in with your brothers who were super athletic in high school, a high school of 1500. You didn't know of any other students or teachers who were openly gay and didn't come out until after you graduated. You also write about they're presenting a version of yourself. Um, I presented a version of me that I performed for my family, church and classmates. Talk about that of having to not be you. Yeah. I mean, I spent 18 years of my life believing I was the only gay person in the world. Uh, I, I, well, I had very few role models. You know, there was Ellen on TV, there was Will and Grace, but I write in the book about how I was terrified of Will and Grace because I thought if I laughed, my family might figure out my secret. Uh, we just grew up at a time and a place where it was simply unsafe to be your most authentic self. Uh, I had teachers in high school who have since come out and who told me a story about having to drive three hours uh, to see any movie with a queer character because they were afraid that someone might see them in the movie theater and they'd lose their job. Uh, we just had to present ourselves in a safe way that could be accepted by the social norms. Um, and I want young people to, to read this book and to know that they are perfectly fine just the way they are. There's nothing wrong with them. And there are millions of people out here backing them up. Um, and it really does get better. And it will continue to get better if we all commit ourselves to that work. You know, and I mean, you're slightly younger than me, but I, you know, it, but but it's it's sort of I guess shocking for a lot of people to think that in the Will and Grace era, which felt like a much more inclusive era, the post Ellen era, that you were still feeling like you were unable to come out. But what might it have meant to you in high school if you'd had a gay teacher, if you'd known there was a, a another person in school, if there had been a club like you talked about going back to your school, and now there was an LGBTQ uh, and allies club? What might that have meant to you? Yeah, um, I, I love my parents deeply. They're, they're staunch advocates of ours. But I tell people often, I'm out on book tour right now, and I'm talking to people about how my life would have changed dramatically had I had a 10-second conversation with them when I was younger, had they sat me down and said, we just want you to know we love you no matter what, no matter who you are. We love you. We believe that you are perfect uh, in God's image, whether you're gay, straight, or, or anything else. Um, you will always have a roof over your head and you will always have two parents who love you here. And of course, my parents love me, but we just didn't talk about LGBTQ people at all uh, growing up. And I imagine what my life could have been like had we had that conversation when I was young. Then I could have poured all of my energy and time into things that uh, I really enjoyed rather than spending so much time consumed with this fear that I would lose everything and lose everyone if they found out this little fact about me.
Um, you know, we also know that the suicide rates, um, the suicidal ideation rates are much higher um, for um, young LGBTQ people. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among young people um, age 10 to 24. LGBTQ youth are more than four times as likely to attempt suicide than their peers. Per the Trevor Project, they estimate more than 1.8 million LGBTQ youth seriously consider suicide each year in the U.S., and at least one attempts it every 45 seconds. 45 percent seriously considered attempt suicide in the past year. And yet, in places like Florida, in places like Arkansas, in places um, like Louisiana, Tennessee, your book is probably going to be banned because they might not have an adult they know who is gay or who is trans or who is a lesbian, but this book could actually be their adult, right? What do you make of the fact that it's highly likely that your book will be banned in the states where students already feel the most alone? Yeah, I'm under no illusion of the the political landscape. Uh, I was uh, a former middle school teacher, so I know my audience. Uh, I wrote a completely age-appropriate book. So if the book is banned, I, I think that's just politics. And to the young people, I say, I am so sorry that we hold you to a higher standard than those people in positions of power, that the people in positions of power at the state house, especially in places like Florida, are behaving like children right now. They're not focused on solving real-world issues and making your life better. The statistics, the data you just showed from the Trevor Project, they ignore those realities because they do not care. And they are more focused on power and clicks and attention and money than improving your lives and keeping you alive. So to you, the young people, I say there are millions of people out here backing you up and, and fighting to make sure that you not only stick around and know that you are loved and cared for, but that you can start focusing on other things and living your life, uh, enjoying what it is like to be a teenager, rather than having to hold adults in positions of power accountable. Yeah, indeed. Well, thank you so much for being here. How are the kids real quick? I know that you uh, and, and Secretary Pete, I have to stop calling him Mayor Pete. How are, the, how are your adorable children? They're fantastic. We're coming up on two. And so while I'm out on the road, I miss them very much. There's there's uh, there's nothing like coming home to two giggling toddlers at the end of the day. Uh, and that's what the important work of this book is like uh, creating yeah. a future where we won't have to keep having these conversations for them, I hope. But they're great. Thanks for asking. Well, a book baby is also a different kind of child you have to raise. And also, I'm just going to tell you the twos, they're going to be interesting. I'm just going to see it, leave it at interesting. So enjoy. Well, they're, <laughs> three flirting of them, so. they're flirting with it. Yeah, it's getting crazy. <laughs> it's going to get crazy, but it's also wonderful. Uh, Chastin Buttigieg, thank you so much. Really appreciate you. Here is the book. Um, it is called I Have Something to Tell You for Young Adults. Uh, I hope that everyone gets to read it, especially in the states where they need it the most. And look, people should send them to their good friends who have children who are LGBTQ if they can't get it in school. Thank you very much. And don't go anywhere because Who Won the Week is straight ahead. Y'all, we made it to the end of another week, which means it is time to play our favorite game. Ah, yes. Who won the week? And joining me now to bring a little positivity because there's so much bad news out there is the wonderful Latasha Brown, co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund. Bring us some positivity, my sister. I know somebody had to win the week. Please tell me who. Absolutely. I think there are two 89-year-olds who were born on the same day at the same time that actually have taught me more about womanhood and feminism ever. And one happens to be my aunt. 
Ella Wilmer in Selma, Alabama, and Gloria Steinem, who is who has been a pioneer for feminism. And so I just want to lift up that if the women who have laid the foundation, who are still doing the work, this week we celebrated 50 years um, of the Ms. Foundation and all the millions of dollars that the Ms. Foundation has given to women. So I think who won the week? The women of America, particularly those women who are standing on the front lines, taking care of their families and also have a message around womanhood and feminism. I love that. Those pictures are gorgeous. And those women are both iconic. Your auntie is an icon just as much as Gloria Steinem. But, you know, <laughs> listen, my sister, those pictures, we need to give the origin story of those pictures because my who won the week is you. Because those beautiful pictures, please put those pictures back up. Those were from. Oh, that is glorious. The Ms. Foundation's Women of Vision Award. Award. Tuesday night, I happen to know you were here in the NYC. You received an award, um, the Woman of Vision Award, from your good friend, Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement. And a, a, somebody named Meghan Markle. Who is that? Oh, Meghan Markle. Oh, yes, the Duchess of Sussex also received the award. Tell me what it was like to meet her, to be on that stage, to receive this incredible award. You know what? Well, she is a beautiful person inside and out. She was extremely gracious. And I think that her words meant a lot. At the end of the day, the work that she's doing, the work that the other women and honorees were, are doing, I think that is what's going to change the world. I'm constantly saying it won't be our politics. It will be our humanity to change the world. If anybody can change the world and get the world right, yes. I think it would be. Well, I think if anybody can get the world right, it is you, Latasha Brown. Uh, you are a shero. You know you are a hero of mine because you are out there fighting and grinding to make sure that everybody can vote, that people have this most precious franchise. I love giving people their flowers. I'm handing you your flowers right here on this show. You are my hero, my sister. So congratulations on receiving that award. I just want to know how you felt as Tarana handed you that award. You know, it was absolutely beautiful. It came at a time that I absolutely beautiful to be able to be celebrated by your peers and be celebrated in this beautiful space. The Miss Foundation launched a campaign, a hundred million dollar campaign that they're going to raise a hundred million. They're halfway there. Um, and the, all of those resources are going to support organizations that support women and girls. How can I not be so honored that they would acknowledge the work that I've been doing? With the Southern Black Girls and Women's Consortium and the money that we're putting on the ground. We also have a campaign for $100 million that we're giving to Black women and girls. And we just granted $3 million. So I'm so, so honored and excited. Women get the work done. Now, y'all notice what did happen, right? I asked this sister how she felt receiving this award, and she turned it around and talked about the good that other people are doing and all the wonderful things other people are doing. And if I can be shallow, my dear... You looked real beautiful. That dress was everything. That hair was everything. That look was everything. You are everything. Latasha Brown, you won the week. Thank you so much for coming on. That is tonight's readout. <laughs>